Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today's episode is going to be the last episode of Season 3 of BAPCAST. Don't worry, though, we will be back with future seasons soon. Today's episode is a little bit of a diversion away from the typical programming focused on discussing research papers, and we're going to instead focus on a tribute paper that was published in Behavior Analysis and Practice titled, Jack Michael's Contributions to the Treatment of Autism by Carl and Mark Sundberg. Carl and Mark are brothers who received their doctoral degrees at Western Michigan University under the direction of Jack Michael. Since receiving their degrees, Carl and Mark have gone on to do tremendous work in the field of behavior analysis through research, service, dissemination, etc. Carl is the chief clinician and co-founder of the Behavior Analysis Center for Autism, and Mark is the creator of the VBMAP assessment and the co-creator of the ABLES assessment. It was truly an honor to talk with Carl and Mark about their mentor, Jack Michael. They tell some great stories about Jack, and I'm really excited to share it with you. So without further ado... Here's my interview with Carl and Mark Sundberg. Hi, Carl and Mark. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Glad to be here. Hey, Cody, it's good to be here. Yep. So this interview is a, a little bit different in structure than many of our, our typical interviews and many of the papers we typically look at, because this is a tribute paper to Jack Michael, one of the most pivotal, most important figures in the history of behavior analysis. Could you each tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you're connected to Jack Michael and why you felt obligated to to write this paper? Uh, Well, thank you, Cody. I'll start first. Uh, I uh, transferred to Western Michigan University in 1973 and uh, At that time, behavior analysis was just emerging. Behavioral psychology was becoming very popular. And there was an article in uh, Psychology Today by Kenneth Goodall that talked about uh, the rise of Skinnerian psychology at American universities. And he identified several of the people that were doing things. And uh, he he concluded saying that the the two most prominent uh, universities were the University of Kansas and Western Michigan University. And I had been at Ferris State College in Northern Michigan uh, my freshman, sophomore year, and I immediately transferred to Western and started as a, as a junior. And I was there until uh, 1980. Uh, in 1974, I took my first Jack Michael class. It was uh, his verbal behavior class. Now, I hadn't really had 
many courses. In fact, I had no real courses in behavior analysis per se. So uh, I was behind most of the other sophomores because it was a sophomore level class, but I was a junior. And uh, uh, that class changed my life. I had never worked harder in my life in a course. It was extremely difficult, uh, but I left that course feeling like I understood behavior analysis in a way that I, I never had before. But also uh, that same semester, I started working in a special ed school called Kalamazoo Valley Multi-Handicap Center. And that was directed by Jerry Shook. And uh, that was a place where we, we served about oh, 70 kids or so with a variety of, of developmental disabilities, blind, deaf, autism, cerebral palsy. Uh, and and uh, it was also a practicum site for Western Michigan Psychology Department. And my first child was a deaf child with autism, a girl about 10 years old. And the very same week that I started working with this girl, I started Jack Michael's verbal behavior class. And that combination turned out to be extremely powerful. As Jack was talking about man training or manding, uh, I was trying it out in the classrooms and trying to do man training with this deaf girl who had no, no mans at all. And uh, I didn't know sign language at the time and, and uh, started taking the sign language classes uh, at the multi-handicap center that were offered there. And uh, it turned out Jack was very interested in sign language. In the 1960s, he worked with a deaf professor named Lee Meyerson and was very in tune with the deaf community and, and was interested in ape language and, and symbol system communication. And so we interacted quite a bit on on that topic, I became a registered interpreter for the deaf and began to teach sign language classes. And I, I uh, uh, offered a class at Kalamazoo Valley Community College in 1975. I was maybe 21 or 22 years old. And I get my class roster and Jack Michael was one of my students. Uh, he had signed up for my class. So, you know, here I am nervous as heck and going to class and there's Jack sitting in class, all ready to go. Jack was on sabbatical that year, so he had plenty of time. Uh, Jack was a terrible student. It was very <laughs> difficult to manage. He kept interrupting me, he hijacked my whole presentations all the time, took over the practice sessions, and ultimately modified my whole teaching format to a verbal behavior platform. Uh, and then the next semester, when he went back to teaching the next semester, uh, oh, Jack took two courses from me. So he then signed up for the second level uh, of that course. And the next fall, when he went back, he started offering a verbal behavior applications class. And that was kind of like our sign class, but now he was the real teacher kind of. Uh, uh, but it was much more detailed. Jack took on all kinds of topics like ape language research, uh, dementia, autism, deafness, blindness, all the various areas where Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior could have applications, reading and writing and, and so on. And uh, at that time in the 1970s, Skinner's book had been out for 20 years, yet there were almost no applications. Not many people were doing uh, research on Skinner's verbal behavior, certainly its applications. There were a few uh, uh, groups around doing it. Uh, Joe Payer and his students up at Manitoba were doing verbal behavior research. Joe Spradlin at University of Kansas, Parsons Language Center. And uh, Jack started coming to our research meetings uh, at the Handicap Center. 
and uh, we sort of begin to try things with verbal behavior. And, and uh, Jack came out every week and we first started doing uh, various kinds of applications of man tact and interverbal training. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the specific research we, we had done a, a little bit later. Uh, but we then uh, uh, went on, and, and again, my history with Jack was he got me involved in the Verbal Behavior Special Interest Group. Actually, I, I was his doctoral student at the time, and he assigned me all the tasks that uh, needed to be done and, and such, like starting the Verbal Behavior Newsletter, which was the VB News, and, and I, I started that with, with Jack's assistant. The VB News ultimately became the analysis of verbal behavior, and also Jack was behind that uh, uh, work and such. So that kind of covers a, a quick seven and a half year period of, of my relationships with Jack. Uh, interesting enough, uh, I was in the 70s and, and Carl came along in the 80s and 90s. And each one of us as Jack students got a different Jack. Jack was very different in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. As Jack learned, his analysis has changed and we all kind of got the newest, latest Jack. And so the kind of things that Carl got 10 or 15 years later uh, were much more advanced than the kind of things that, that Jack was working on when we were first trying to figure out verbal behavior. Uh, verbal behavior. Uh, I'll stop there and uh, pass it on to Carl. All right. Well, I'm going to start my story uh, the same time that Mark started his, 1973. Um, but I was in ninth grade. See, um, Jack Michael was a legend in our house while I was still in high school. Um, Mark would come home from college and all he'd talk about was Jack Michael or sitting around the dinner table. It's Jack this, Jack that, Jack Michael. And, you know, Mark would talk about Jack like he was a wizard. And clearly Mark was a transformed person. I mean, he was, you know, so influenced. And it was kind of exciting to hear. But in my mind, back in the early 70s, when you said psychologist, the only psychologist I could think of was Bob Newhart in the, in the 70s show where he played a psychologist. So every time Jack was mentioned, Bob Newhart would pop up in my mind. Um, and I carried that image until I finally met him. Um, Jack, I never met Bob Newhart, uh, but I couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, Jack and Bob Newhart. Um, in any event, I told Mark that I wanted to go into what he was going into. I wanted to be a, uh, I don't think I call it a behavior analysis uh, analyst at that time. I said, I want to become a psychologist. Um, and a couple of years later, or a year later, maybe uh, for Christmas, Mark uh, bought me the book about behaviorism. So I'm in uh, like 10th grade a C student uh, at best, and I'm trying to read about behaviorism. Um, I didn't understand much of it, um, but yes, Mark, I did try to read it. Um, <laughs> Good job. Uh, yeah, I, I fully understood it in grad school. Well, not fully, I mean, but it was much better. So a couple of years later, I think I was a senior in high school, uh, and Mark gave me his, his book uh, by Dick Malat, uh, his um, textbook, uh, Elementary Principles of Behavior. And I love that one. Um, it had cartoons, um, and I was hooked. And so it goes. My senior year in, in high school, I had a little delay. I didn't quite make it uh, as when I wanted to, but my senior year in high school, I remember I took a Greyhound bus to Kalamazoo and I spent the morning with uh, at Western Michigan with a track coach who's uh, offered me a scholarship in pole vaulting. 
And then um, I spent the afternoon with Mark in the psych department. So there it is. There's my future. I'm going to pole vault, be on the track team, behavior analysis, psych department. Um, you know, it was kind of cool. Athletic department and locker rooms and dorms in the morning. And then the afternoon is pigeons and rats and, and laboratories. And at some point we hooked up with uh, Al Neal sometime in that afternoon. And he was one of Jack's um, PhD students. Wasn't he from, originally from Arizona, Mark? Yeah, he was at Arizona State University, and, then, and okay. he never graduated. And, and then Jack, he finished at Western. Yeah. Yeah. But but um, he was a nice guy. I was just, we, we ended up going to uh, the campus bar, Waldo's. Um, it was actually called Gaspar's back then for, for anyone that remembers. But um, we ended up going there and discussing our, our my future in behavior analysis, among other things. And I was, I was pumped. I was ready to go to Western. Um, and that was the plan. But a little bit later, over the next year, I got a little sidetracked because I, I had some other interests brewing. Um, I, I thought I was really good at the guitar, um, and I was interested in the theater. And and so that's the first fork in the road. And I'm thinking behavior analysis and pole vaulting or theater and, and you know, rock star. Um, and I decided to give the theater a shot because back then, you know, I'm 17 and I was pretty sure that I could make it on Broadway. And, and I was pretty sure being a 17 year old, a little cocky, I was pretty sure that I could cut an album with whatever rock band I could throw together at the time, uh, back when cutting an album was a, was a big deal. Um, but I always wanted to go back to behavior analysis. Uh, but I just got so addicted to the theater, <laughs> the, the reinforcers there. Um, and uh, there might have been a woman. Hey, wait. Carl, and then yeah. didn't, didn't you write a play about B.F. Skinner? Oh, <laughs> yes. B.F. Skinner, yes. one of the plays you wrote? <laughs> yes, yes. It, it was. I, I wrote a play, and, and at the time, Mark was probably 1978, and I was still thinking of going back, and, and I worked in Manned and Tacked, and, and at one point, there's this commercial about E.F. Hutton, and it's a, when E.F. Hutton talks, he's a, a, an insurance guy. And then everyone comes back in, people listen. And in the play, uh, there's a line where I said, well, who's your psychologist? Well, my psychologist is B.F. Skinner. And everyone that was in the previous scene came back in and they were going like, you know, trying to listen. There's a, when B.F. Skinner talks, people listen, you know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So um, it, it, those were very addicting, immediate reinforcers, you know, so they kept me there for, for years. Um, but after about four or five years, I started to realize that maybe, just maybe, I'm not going to make a decent living in the arts. Um, I also started to realize that I was a big fish in a small pond, you know, Battle Creek, Michigan. Don't mean to call it a small pond, but it's not New York. <laughs> and, and when I did venture out to bigger ponds, I, I got pretty small. Um, and, but, but in any event, I finally made it to Kalamazoo. Um, I ended up getting a, a, a few classes a couple of years at, at Cal Community College. So I came to, uh, I was a junior then when I came to uh, uh, Western Michigan in 1985. Um, and I had my first class with Jack and I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Um, but after that class, all I could say is, wow, um, he blew me away. Um, and, you know, I didn't know what just happened. But the one thing I knew for sure was I had to call my boss at the bowling alley and get my bartending hours reduced because suddenly <laughs> nothing was more important to me than becoming a, a master of behavior analysis. Jack sold me um, 
just in that one class. I mean, I, I, I figured it was good, but after listening to Jack, it's like, wow, I tell you what, if he didn't make it in college teaching, he could have sold vacuum cleaners, except his product is <laughs> college teachers was real and authentic. You know, um, I don't, I don't want to imply the, the implication of selling vacuum cleaners or used car salesmen. He was real, <laughs> but he was just so good and, and everything made sense. Um, so the other thing, Jack made me forget about material items. Nothing mattered anymore. Um, uh, and um, learning from Jack was 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 the the best. Um, and from there, I was hooked. And and my life since then has been devoted to behavior analysis. Oh, and my wife and kids. I should probably say that. <laughs> Thank you both for sharing that. I the the history there is so fascinating. And Mark, when you were talking about being uh, an undergraduate student at Ferris State and looking at the, I think you said Psychology Today article that it sort of mentioned the Skinner's behaviorism push. Why, why was that meaningful for you? Why did you see that there were programs focusing on Skinnerian behaviorism and, and decided to, to go there? Well, uh, interestingly, Ferris State College had a slight bit of behaviorism, but unintentionally. Uh, I had taken six or seven traditional psychology classes. I wanted to be a psychologist. That was that's why I had psychology today. Is I was I was going to be a cool psychologist. Like Carl was going to be an actor. I wanted to be a psychologist, you know, and stroke my beard like Freud. And so I was pretty Freudian, uh, and had all these traditional classes, none of which transferred to Western. When I started out at Western, they had me start out at the freshman level, in in my major in psychology. Uh, but I had a sociology class that used Walden II as a textbook. And the first Skinner book I read was Walden II. And now keep in mind, this was 1972. And so hippies, communes, it all settled pretty well in where I thought the world should be. And, and I was very interested in that. I was also taking philosophy courses and was very interested in determinism and, and uh, uh, Skinner was talked about a little bit in that course. And of course I had the basic intro courses where you got a chapter on operant conditioning, a chapter on respondent conditioning. So I had some history, but when that art, and so I was behaviorally oriented. When that article came out, Western Michigan was 15 miles from Carl and I's home. And so Kalamazoo it was. Uh, that's great. And, and Carl, it, in some ways, doesn't seem like you had a, a lot of choice in the matter. It sounds like you were being targeted and indoctrinated from a very early age, you know, ninth grade getting about behaviorism and then uh, a lot principles of behavior later. When you decided to switch out of theater and the arts, was it, was there any other sort of temptation or was it, yeah, I'm going to go to Western Michigan. I'm going to study psychology and study with Jack Michael. Uh, I, I always wanted that in, in the back of my mind, but it was almost it's, it was almost like, uh, boy, if I don't make it in the in the theater, which, you know, is ludicrous because I'm going to, uh, I can fall back on this. But then as the years went by, you know, I always always thought I, I do want to go back there. And then the later years after three years um, and then to the fourth year, then I started working on working my way back. And I'd also, you know, I didn't, I didn't come in fresh when I, when I started with Jack, because um, Mark had also directed me, you know, in high school and shortly after high school to some other, other books. Mark, do you remember Pigeons to People, that book? Um, um, and, and there's another one called Take Charge. What are your, do you know the author? To oh, some yes, of this? I, read right. about, I, I read that. about three or four books um, after the Malat book. So 
by the time I got to Jack, I was, uh, you know, I, I was, I was ready. I had uh, some basics, but, um, you know, and then of course I always thought I'd go back to the theater a little bit, but I never did. Okay, Mark. Yes. So, uh, so what you're saying is, I kept, I kept uh, prodding you <laughs> and saying, "Here, Carl, read this. Maybe this will get you your life back together. You're not going to make it in the theater. You need to be a behavior analyst." Did I do any of that? <laughs> yeah, but I remember you were always in the audience in my shows. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, I loved them. I loved oh, yeah, them. It, it, Kellogg it, Community College. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I was definitely influenced by Mark um, from the get go, from ninth grade, um, and, and and I was influenced by by all of my brothers and sisters. But but this is something that there were know, eight of really, us, by the way. There were eight of us, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, I I I definitely credit Mark. So so I didn't stumble upon behavior analysis like a lot of people do. Um, you know, I taught uh, uh, intro to psych as a grad student for a long time. And a lot of a lot of students, they just they're taking it as a general credit. And then they they decide, well, this is really cool. And they switch their majors um, or, or drop out. Some not everyone says <laughs> it's crap. But I, I really enjoyed it when people come up to me and say, man, this is really good stuff. I'm going to change my major. That's so, awesome. You, you said that you you never made it back to the performing arts well it sounds like you still have that play that the play based on skinner so maybe we'll see a rejuvenation maybe uh yeah the problem with that is it's really based in the 70s and and there are puns of of all the current things you know you have to know like the cult 45 commercial and you have to know all the commercials (laughs) but (laughs) i'd have to rewrite it and i'm not i'm not culturally literate anymore the, the current um, you know everything though about teenage girls though i bet you know and, yeah uh, what's yes. happening in that world <laughs> yeah yes girl yeah. has three daughters and and luckily my oldest is into rock and roll and <laughs> plays guitar <laughs> she will be a rock star and yeah. and clarinet and all kinds of other cool stuff well, maybe she can help you rewrite it or revise it, and, and you can do a uh, rendition yeah. at ABAI or something. Actually, she came across the script not too long ago. I was digging up some stuff, and she started reading it. And this is probably a few years ago. I said, Dad, you've got swear words in here. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. Uh, well, that's... You know, it was the 70s. <laughs> It's it's really fascinating to hear about how your your stories intertwined with Jack and and as we've talked about and alluded to in your paper, sort of goes in depth on Jack was a very very influential member of the behavior analytic community, certainly within behavior, uh, Western Michigan University but beyond right into the entire behavior analytic community mm-hmm. and Western Michigan University where I did all my degrees was was really fortunate in having them, him there and having him as a resource. Early in your paper, you talk about some of the, the major influences that he had. Uh, would you mind for some of the audience members who may not be as familiar with some of Jack's work, talk about why Jack is so influential? Um, sure, I'll, I'll uh, begin with that. Uh, Jack graduated from UCLA in 1955 as an experimental psychologist, not, not particularly behavioral at all, uh, but he did purchase Skinner's Science and Human Behavior, and he never read it while he was at UCLA, and his first teaching job was at the uh, University of Kansas, 
and he was teaching a, a, a course where this clinical psychology content was was required. And uh, Jack looked through his material and and uh, picked up science and human behavior. He says he he read it immediately uh, from cover to cover, and then turned around and read it again a second time, all in one weekend. That he devoured it, and he was immediately a Skinnerian. He, he reports in, in a variety of places. And uh, Skinner's book, Science and Human Behavior, is really the beginning of applied behavior analysis, the, the contents there. That is the concept that these basic principles of behavior can be used to solve clinical problems. They, they have applications. And uh, that content was in the book. But of course, Science and Behavior had no data, no research. There was no real proof that this would work. And behavior analysis, uh, or behavioral psychology at the time was really a hard sell in psychology. Most psychologists uh, really wanted nothing to do with Skinner. They considered it theory. They were the notion that rats and pigeons could tell you what to do with human clinical problems was was absurd from the the psychologist's point of view at the time. And and uh, uh, that was pretty difficult. So Jack was was sort of by himself. There was a small group of people. Uh, that were doing this, but uh, Jack became a real Skinnerian at University of Kansas, and he began to incorporate uh, science and behavior content into all of his courses. Skinner sent him an early draft of verbal behavior in 1955. Uh, the book was published in 57, and Jack started incorporating that content into his courses. Uh, well, it didn't sit very well with his fellow faculty members, as their students would say, yes, but what about Skinner? Uh, and Jack got fired. Uh, uh, and uh, he's kind of proud of that. He, he, he uh, says they just, they, they didn't like me there. Uh, and he got a job at, at uh, University of Houston uh, in, in 1957. And at University of Houston, he was accepted as the token behavior analyst. And that's the way it was in the, in the 50s was that um, there, there just wasn't a lot of, there weren't many people doing behavior analysis and there certainly were no programs in behavior analysis uh, much at the time. Um, and uh, that transition from the animal lab to human behavior was, was really a lot of unknown uh, periods. How do, how do you approach this? How do we take these data and make sense out of them? And the first line of research in the 50s that moved into the human area uh, were, were along the lines of, do the principles of behavior work with humans like they work with, with animals? That is, is a human susceptible to the same behavior patterns in an intermittent schedule of reinforcement? Does a fixed schedule look the same as a variable schedule? And, and Og Lindsley and many of Skinner's students pursued that, that general line of research that uh, those principles, uh, will they apply for humans? Well, uh, Jack wasn't interested in any of that. And uh, at, uh, at University of Houston, uh, one of his uh, graduate students was uh, Ted Ione. And uh, Ted Ione, uh, during his, his uh, time as a student, uh, Jack was involved in a, in a, a, a research project. He, he and uh, some of his other students, I think Lloyd Brooks was, was running this, had a, a, an operant lab with kids. And uh, uh, Jack took... Uh, Ted Ione into the lab and there's a little five-year-old child working in the lab, no adults in the lab. And the child was pressing the lever basically on schedule stuff, looking at fixed interval and would get trinkets through a dispenser. Jack turned over the dispenser to uh, 
Ted Ione, and said, Ted, now what I want you to do is see if you can get this child to, instead of pressing the lever, touch the wall. So as the minute he starts moving his hand toward the wall, give him a, a trinket. And Ted Ione reports this story in his 2021 paper that's in the analysis of verbal behavior, where he recalls his early days with Jack. And uh, Ted's watching this and he says, Sure enough, in a few trials, the child starts reaching the wall. And then Jack says, now try and see if you can get it over here. And uh, the, the child did, and pretty soon the child's touching the other part of the wall. And then child, uh, Jack says, see if you can get him to touch high up, down low. And Ted reports that he was absolutely blown away by this, that you could actually use the principles of behavior to change behavior, to modify behavior. And then the next semester, he got an internship at Saskatoon State Hospital uh, in Canada, where he is working with psychotic patients and people in the uh, various uh, states in the, in the ward. And he began, uh, and he reports that I, I then thought I would try some of Jack's shaping kind of things. You know, and I look back in, in Science of Human Behavior and Skinner never mentioned shaping in Science of Human Behavior. The word does not appear, at least according to my word searches. And I don't know where it first began to appear in the, in the literature, but Jack was demonstrating shaping and how you could use shaping to, to generate new behavior. And, and uh, Ted did that at Saskatoon State Hospital and uh, with amazing results. He got all kinds of, of changes in psychotic patients. And uh, he came back and he and Jack interacted and Jack sent him back to the Saskatoon, said, you need more data on this and this. And he went back and did three more months uh, at Saskatoon. And together, Jack and, and Ted Ione published the very first empirical demonstration, Ione and Michael, 1959, the first empirical demonstration that showed that Skinner's principles of behavior could be used to solve clinical problems. They called it uh, behavioral engineering. The title of the paper was The Psychiatric Nurse as a Behavioral Engineer. And that's what it was called at that, at that time period. Also at the University of Houston, there was a professor I had pre previously mentioned named uh, Lee Meyerson, and Lee was deaf and was in, uh, interested in rehabilitation. He could, he could lip read and, and speak, uh, but he and Jack became good friends. In fact, they were office mates at, at University of Houston, and Lee used to challenge Jack, say, well, I, I got a kid who spits on people. Now, what would, be, what would Skinner say about that? And, and uh, Jack would used to tell us all these stories about how Lee kept really pulling him into the applied area. And it was Lee Meyerson who really cultivated Jack's interest. Well, Lee and Jack, during the 1960s, published several major articles on bringing what they then started calling behavior modification. So behavioral engineering became behavior modification in the 1960s. And uh, they published papers of bringing behavior mod to the area known as rehabilitation, now developmental disabilities and, and other areas. But uh, they published papers in the, the Ullman and Krasner uh, book, Case Histories in, in uh, Behavior Modification. They published a chapter in, in, in that book, which was a major book in, in my day and in, in the 60s. And then uh, uh, they published a chapter in Bijou and Bear's Child Development Series. Uh, um, and so that, that movement uh, was, was occurring uh, pretty strongly. Uh, Jack then went to Arizona State University. So he taught at University of Houston for three years from 1957 to 1960. In 1960, he went to Arizona State University where Arthur Statz was starting a behavioral PhD program, the first of its kind. And he started, Israel Goldiamond was there and uh, 
Arthur Statz, Jack and Arthur Statz went to UCLA together and they were, they were buddies at, at UCLA. And so Art got Jack to come as well. And um, uh, several of Jack's students from University of Houston transferred with him. One was Montrose Wolf. Montrose Wolf did his master's degree with Jack at University of Houston and then went to uh, uh, University or Arizona State University for his PhD. Jack was, or Mott was Jack's second PhD student. So Ted Ione was his first, Mott Wolf was his second. And uh, after Mott graduated, Sid Bijou had recruited Mott Wolf uh, in 1962 to join him and Don Baer, Todd Risley, Jim Sherman, Ivar Lovas, Barbara Etzel, Betty Hart, Jim, I say Jim Sherman, uh, uh, Jay Bernbrower, this whole collection of people were at, at Washington State University and uh, Montrose Wolf joined that, that group. And that, that group was probably one of the, the first really home of applied behavior analysis. Uh, uh, but Mont was the first one to publish a study uh, showing that behavior and behavioral approaches can work with children with autism. In 1964, Wolf, Risley, and Mies published the first study on autism. And in that study, they presented the basic tenets of what we now call ABA. That is early intervention, parent training, staff training, generalization, maintenance, trial by trial data, single subject research designs. That was all in that 1964 study by Mott Wolf. Uh, Mott Wolf also was the first to show the decremental effect, effects of a timeout procedure. So we look at, at some of those early, early uh, contributions to um, the development of behavior modification uh, as, as it then kind of begin to progress into applied behavior analysis. Mott Wolf, along with Don Baer and Todd Risley in 1965, all moved to the University of Kansas, where they started that program there. Now, remember Goodall saying the places to go are Kansas and Western. Well, Mott Wolf went to Kansas. And, we, and Mott Wolf was the first editor of Java. And then of course, Bear Wolf and Risley kind of set the tenets for the field of applied behavior analysis. So we got to see uh, behavioral engineering, behavior modification, now applied behavior analysis, all kind of progressing uh, during that time period from University of Houston, Arizona State University, uh, along with uh, Jack and his students. Jack then went to Western Michigan University in 1967. Uh, uh, for a number of reasons. One was Western was going to start an undergraduate behavior analysis program, the first of its kind. Um, so I'll stop there. Uh, that was my uh, story into the 70s. And then again, as I mentioned, Carl was there uh, beginning in 1985 uh, and saw a different Jack at that point. Yeah, I remember <laughs> a lot of this growing up, I, not the 60s, of course, but um... <laughs> Some of the stuff Mark talks about, I was still in high school or, or shortly after, so um, good, good stuff. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about his classes and what it was like uh, to be there uh, in his class and how he taught, um, which could easily be a, a three-hour presentation, but I'll try to keep it to like five minutes. But so, so Jack taught or influenced a lot of people who went on to make contributions to behavior analysis, as, as Mark said. Um, uh, but it's his teachings in, in Skinner's verbal behavior where he and some of his students developed uh, clinical applications um, to help uh, people with language delays. And, and that was ultimately the field that I went into, Mark went into. Um, uh, his classes were 
class with Jack was more than just a class. For me, it was a, it was a sport, you know, and I was on the team. Um, Friday tests became like game day. And uh, me and my fellow teammates, we were, we were ready to conquer that exam. You know, it was, it was, it was really a, a, an event. Uh, and the exams were like, you know, really hard. Uh, about after we finished about two hours, <laughs> all essay, by the way, four or five pages, um, would go out in the hall and would start reviewing uh, the answers that Jack provided. So it would turn in the exam and, and pick up the answer key. And, you know, Jack would write out four or five pages. Um, so I would recap our whole experience, including the preparation. You know, it's like, yeah, what? You only studied 15 hours this week? Huh. Um, and it was just like we walked off the, the field on game day, you know, just walked off the football field and we're in the locker room and saying, oh, man, that was cool. But, oh, God, we'll share our victories and curse our, our heirs, you know. God darn it. I think I used a mentalistic term <laughs> and, and Jack was uh, sometimes Jack would take off points. Um, if he used a mentalistic term, uh, he'd warn us and say this test, I'm going to take off a point for every mentalistic term. <laughs> or he'd write bah on the side bah. of the paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so we couldn't wait to see that uh, spreadsheet go up because uh, that would come up the very next day. And that told us everything we needed to know um, where we stood, where we stood with our, the rest of the class. It's not supposed to matter, but you know, you look at these social security numbers, say, huh, wonder who that is. Eight, six, five, six is, Hey, is that 2319? Uh, I think she, I finally beat Get her. Smart. Him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but we knew what we needed to average to get a, a certain grade um, that was on the spreadsheet. And if we had enough points, we wouldn't have to take the final. His teaching method was just, you know, something to behold. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit uh, more. Um, but his analysis, uh, his, it was like... Uh, it was, it was like what we felt we were getting in on the ground floor of something really big, you know, back then. Um, it was like we were part of a, a, a top secret mission and we're gaining access to this information that, you know, was kept from the rest of the world. That's what it felt like being, for me anyway, and and, and my my friends, my my peers in those days, and I'm sure Mark felt, felt that way. Um, sure. But I still remember my first um, graduate class with Jack and it was called Skinner's Recent Writings. Now, everything we read, this was in 1987, but all of the writings were from the 1940s and 50s and the, the class was Skinner's Recent Writings. And I don't know, Mark, maybe maybe Jack started teaching that class in 1960, I, I don't know. But <laughs> in any event, um, one day during our discussion, um, we're trying to figure out what Skinner was talking about. And even Jack was a bit puzzled, um, which is rare because Jack, by the way, a little side note, um, uh, I asked Jack once, and this was about 1988, how many times he's read Science and Human Behavior? He said about 80 times. And how many times has he read Verbal Behavior? He said about 85 times. And I'm sure that it doubled since then. So, so you know, talking about mastery, he taught us to be masters and he knew what mastery meant. And with the exams, you really had to know what you're doing to, to, to pass one of Jack's um, exams. So we were puzzled by what the point was. I don't remember what the point was, but in any event, Monday, Jack walks into class and says, well, I called Fred over the weekend, you know, Skinner. And, and we're like, oh, wow, he just called Skinner. And I asked him about X, Y, and Z in that passage. And he said, 
that was a long time ago and he doesn't really remember what he was trying to say. You know, so aside from the humor at that point, um, the fact that Jack would just call Skinner and, and talk about what we were talking about in class just reinforced the notion that we were the in crowd. We were, we were the, the hip crowd. We were on the cutting edge of unlocking all the secrets of the universe. Um, and, and Jack was, he was well known for his college teaching. You know, so it's like, it's like his analysis was brilliant, his conceptual uh, it, um, uh, analysis, but also his teaching, you know. Um, and, you know, he, he didn't sit in the laboratory and pump out studies like, you know, 200 studies like a lot, lot of professors and, and to their credit do, but Jack was just his teaching and his students pumped out a lot of, lot of research. But um, like I said, his teaching was designed to build mastery. And as whole, with Jack, there's a whole nother level of mastery, you know. Um, but he also taught us students to be teachers. So he even taught a, a two semester graduate course on how to teach at the college level. Um, and you can read about this, in Michael, 1991. It's, you know, in, in great detail. Um, so, so we watched him do this, but then we got to do it ourselves. So during the second semester, um, the first one was a, a seminar. Uh, in the summer, and then in the fall, would actually teach um, a, cl a class, an introductory to site class, and there'd be 12 to, to 20 students in there, and uh, would teach it just like Jack. I think we, I think we had to, I don't think we had a choice, but why wouldn't we? I mean, <laughs> everything. Um, I also taught um, um, the Psych 100 with a larger group, 250 people in the class, and you couldn't quite, we tried to do it, but you, you couldn't do essay exams and such, but uh, with this smaller crowd, which, you know, most of Jack's classes were smaller crowd, we could do it just like Jack, you know, the objectives, the spreadsheets, the, the you know, if, and, and if you, um, you could even argue a, a point, a grade, like if, if Jack said, you know, not quite right, or he took points off, and, uh, and, and you thought maybe he didn't understand. It's like, you don't understand what I was saying, Jack. So he could challenge him. And, and, and Mark, didn't you have a story? Didn't you challenge him once? And, and you ended well, up with losing more points than you came I, in I, with? <laughs> I tried. I was pretty much thinking I was a, I was a smart kid. But he, I, I went in and challenged him on a question on metonymical tax. Yeah. And uh, uh, I gave my story, made my case with Jack. And we talked a little bit and then, and then he says, okay, I'll, I'll give you your points back. And I'm going, yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I'm getting my stuff and he goes, well, but wait a minute, let, let me look at your answers to these other questions. Cause I, I want to make sure you're thinking about this all clearly. And I start sweating and within about 30 seconds, he goes, Oh no, you, no, you shouldn't have gotten your point. No, I'm, uh, you shouldn't have, you got a half a point for that. The, the graders off on this one. I'm going to take that. And I'm going, no, don't. And, and what seemed like about an hour, uh, I ended up getting out of there. Even I got out, even, but I never went back to challenge Jack again. Yeah. So yeah, it's just so many, so many good stories. Uh, so, so Jack was our supervisor for these sessions and, and would meet for a couple hours every week um, as a group. Sometimes we'd meet at his house. Um, he was always available and his house was like an extension to his classroom. Go over there many times. Um, I think I designed half of my study in his living room. Um, but you could go over there anytime, except when he had the sign on the door that says I'm napping. Um, and if you wake me up, I'll be grumpy. Um, so you, you did not, you didn't want to test him on that. 
Um, so Jack created this culture of, of conceptual thinking, and that culture ha has been passed down through the generations. Um, and, and we hope to carry it on for many generations to come. Um, I said, it's hard, hard, to, hard to get all of this in in a short time because we could, <laughs> there's so much. We could write a book on Jack. I, I'm sure you could. The, the history is so rich and so many different branches of influence that he had from his teaching and his students, as you had sort of outlined, um, into some of his research lines, which we'll talk about in a moment. But one of the things that struck me, both in your paper and just from conversations I've, I've had with, with alumni from Western Michigan University. I was at Western Michigan University when, when it celebrated its 50 years of behavior analysis. And so I got to hear a lot of alumni come back and talk about their, their reflections on the program. And a lot of alumni most seem to reflect on Jack's undergraduate courses, teaching verbal behavior specifically, using the verbal behavior text, which it sounds like both of you were exposed to or uh, potentially were exposed to. How did, how did Jack pull that off? I mean, that's, that's not an easy book um, for graduate level students, much less undergraduate level students. Well, he didn't actually, because he moved it. Mark had it as an undergrad and then, then he moved it to grad, right? I had it as, yeah. as a grad. <laughs> I can't imagine I an undergrad doing verbal behavior. So. Well, sophomore level. It was sophomore <laughs> level. And oh, so, yeah. Uh, you, you really didn't have a whole lot of preparation for it. Uh, but yet what, what Jack did was he, he had mastered the book and um, uh, he had a lot of tussles with verbal behavior. He, he struggled with what Skinner had done. Like, for example, Skinner had blended the basic analysis of man's tax interverbals in the, his, his uh, uh, taxonomy and, and, and uh, classification system with hundreds of interpretive examples. Everything was all mixed up in the book, really. And so uh, by the time you got to, uh, for example, uh, multiple control, it was page 228. So you're halfway through the book. The autoclitic was mm -hmm. chapter 12. And, and uh, you know, you're at the end of the semester before you're getting some of these things on covert behavior and so on. So Jack reorganized the book. He taught things in different sequence. And he struggled with a lot of the concepts that Skinner had. Like, uh, 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 for example, I'm going to start out talking a little bit about the manned and establishing operation. But there were all these issues in, in the book Verbal Behavior that... Uh, in, in the 1950s, there, it was just Skinner with no verbal community. But as Jack started teaching from it over and over again, now he taught a course in verbal behavior almost every year. So Carl, by the time you got him in maybe 87, 88, he had been teaching verbal behavior for 22 years. And every time he taught it, the course was different because yeah. he, he uh, basically changed, he changed things. Uh, and uh, he made about well, he made dozens of modifications and refinements of the book, but there were about a half a dozen really important uh, uh, um, refinements that he made that helped the student understand what it was that Skinner uh, wanted. If, if you sat down and tried to read verbal behavior on your own, you, you no. wouldn't get it. You would, no. and, and that's where uh, using Jack's objectives, verbal community, and so on um, kind of helps uh, develop that. But 
Carl and I are going to talk about four areas, four refinements that that uh, Jack had had done of verbal behavior, and and uh, each one of them kind of represents an area of research, an area of study, and all of them were with Skinner's blessing. That is, Jack and Skinner, as Carl pointed out, interacted regularly. Skinner came to Kalamazoo, and I uh, was in Jack's house, and we had events for Skinner, and and he was very approachable, and. Jack always uh, talked to Skinner at conferences, and and uh, 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 Skinner was fine with with what Jack was doing. In fact, at one point, Carl, I don't know if you remember this, that that we heard somewhere that Skinner had said, "I never argue with Jack Michael." Yeah, he also said, and I can't verify this, but I, I don't know. I heard this that he said publicly, uh, "Nobody understands him like Jack Michael does," or Jack Michael understands him uh, better than anyone. And that, that was pretty clear that Jack had yeah. a good handle on behavior analysis. And anybody who dared to argue against Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior was in for a formidable opponent in a debate because yeah. Jack was extremely articulate and it was very hard uh, to win. Uh, I watched Jack uh, debate Noam Chomsky. And, mm -hmm. and actually there's a video of that now available through Western Michigan University when Noam came in, I think, 1978, Noam Chomsky came for a colloquium and, and we had several events after that. One of them was a small classroom and, and several students got a chance to argue with, with Chomsky. And uh, uh, we enjoyed seeing Jack argue with him. Uh, but the, the four topics that Carl are gonna, and I are gonna talk about is the establishing operation of the man. So one of the areas that Jack uh, modified was, was that area. Uh, his uh, use of topography-based and selection-based verbal behavior was a modification of the book, um, as well as his extensions on multiple control and multiple variables, multiple causation, and, and uh, automatic consequences, automatic reinforcement. Now, there were several others, but we're going we're to talk about those, those four. Um, uh, and uh, if we look at the establishing operation and Jack's work on that topic, where that kind of uh, evolved from was Skinner talked about the man as being under the functional control of deprivation, satiation, and aversive stimulation. Uh, not only is it kind of a cumbersome source of control, but a lot of man's, let's say, were controlled by variables that were hard to say were deprivation. That is, deprivation was meant to include all kinds of things. So if you all of a sudden, you know, it's, it worked fine in the animal lab where we talked about food deprivation and water deprivation and, and such. But if you, if you encounter a parking meter and it needs a coin, and all of a sudden now you're looking for a coin, to talk about that as being coin deprived up until that immediate evocative effect is cumbersome. Now you can force it into deprivation, but that wasn't in the lay terms or some types of deprivation weren't being deprived, they were being given something. For example, if you give somebody salt, salty chips, it increases the value of liquid and depriving is thought of as withholding. And so the terminology was, was a little tricky. And Fred Keller had actually in 1950 in Keller and Schoenfeld, Keller had suggested Skinner change that term to establishing operation. Now, Fred Keller was also at Western Michigan University from 1970 to 1973 on the faculty. And uh, Fred Keller and Jack interacted uh, pretty regularly. And, and in that time period, in the late 60s and early 70s, Jack began to, to uh, change and introduce the term establishing operation. I know when I took verbal behavior in 1974, it was the establishing operation. That, that's the way Jack presented it. Uh, and 
again, this was an area where there was really no research. Demand was really unknown. People didn't know uh, what to make of it. And uh, uh, several of Jack's uh, students worked at this program I talked about before, the Kalamazoo Valley Multi-Handicap Center. And Jerry Shook set up a program where he really fostered research. He, he allowed students to do their thesis, their dissertation, special projects at the Multi-Handicap Center. And uh, Jack and also Brian Iwata came in regularly each week uh, to our research meetings. Uh, uh, Jack's topics were almost exclusively on verbal behavior. And so we, we kind of began to create what, what ultimately turned out to be Jack's first verbal behavior research lab. And uh, we began to look at, at some of these specific projects and such. At first, uh, what we were interested in is seeing if, if, if Skinner's verbal operants, man, tact, and interverbal, could be used to frame a, a, a language development curriculum. As typically for a nonverbal child or a child with language impairments, language was measured by mean length of utterance, vocabulary size, articulation, and so on. Well, we, we and I would say Jack, you know, basically, and, and these are some of his classes, we should be looking at, at language by its function, not its form. We should be looking at the functional relations at man's tax interverbals as the core of our language intervention program. So. Uh, we, we then pursued that and, and uh, developed assessment and intervention programs for each of the verbal operants and, 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 and such. And as I had mentioned before, Jack was also very interested in sign language selection systems, uh, non-vocal kind of responses. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, in 1977, Jack took me and a couple of his other graduate students, Norm Peterson and Mike Minervini, to see Dwayne Rumbaugh who had his chimpanzee Lana, and Lana was communicating on a symbol board, and Rumbaugh is showing us these videos of Lana, and amazing for us to see, and we were doing a similar thing with children with cerebral palsy, and uh, so Jack, you know, again, being pretty fascinated about all of this, uh, uh, certainly uh, encouraged our research along these lines, and I was just, uh, in preparation for this, I was kind of wondering, what, what did we first present uh, together, Jack and I, and, and from this line of research, and I went back into the MABA program books. And the first thing that Jack and I did together was MABA 1976. And we did a three-hour workshop. Jack, Michael, Norm, Peterson, and myself did a three-hour workshop on sign language and using sign language. And uh, we also talked about ape language. And uh, I presented my first draft of uh, the, the VB map, the first draft of the language intervention programs. And then the next year at ABBA, 1977, we did that again. But this time we did a symposium and Jack was the chair of the symposium. And the symposium was on alternative communication methods uh, for non-vocal kids, which will in a second segue into some of Carl's stuff. But uh, uh, Gray Osborne was the discuss it, and Gray was one of Jack's students from Arizona State, and Gray worked with the deaf. So it looks like our first collection of work there was, does ver can we use verbal behavior in a clinical kind of setting? It wasn't really empirical research in that sense. It was more like demonstration research. Our first basic research was back to the establishing operation. That is, Jack was constantly trying to uh, flush out the establishing operation. We talked about the establishing operation at that time, he used the term establishing stimulus, which is now known as a 
condition motivating operation of transitive type. So initially it was called establishing stimulus. And what we wanted to know is that if you teach a child attacked, will they get a man? If you teach them a man, will he get attacked? If you teach attacked, will he get an interverbal? That is the, the, the functional independence of the, the verbal operants. And uh, again, many of Jack's uh, students worked there and uh, we, we had this, the research lab and, and uh, Janae Hall was one of Jack's master's students. And, and Janae and I did a, 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 a study on if you do teach attack, do you get a man? And the answer is no, not always. You have to directly teach the man. And these were actually that first little deaf girl I worked with was one of our, our participants where she had a lot of attacks, but she wasn't manding. And so we pursued that and begin to found, find if we created a, a, an establishing operation that immediately evoke a, a man. For example, one of the subjects, one of the participants was st strongly reinforced by wiping up water on a table. So if those water spilled, he was obsessed at having to wipe that up. And so we'd spill a little water on the table and then not give him a towel, not have a towel available. And within two or three trials, we got the, we got the sign man for towel uh, occurring in the absence of the towel. Uh, and, and although he could tack the towel, he couldn't have a towel, he couldn't ask for one when he wanted one. And so that was, as far as I know in the literature, the first empirical demonstration of the separation of the man and the tack. Uh, along those same lines, we also then pursued the consequences. What about specific versus non-specific reinforcement? Specific reinforcement being associated with the motivating operation. That is, uh, uh, when you have an EO for a towel and you got water on the floor and, and, and the person signs towel and you say, good job, that's right, towel. Well, that isn't any fun. Give me my damn towel. You know, the towel, the specific reinforcement is specific to the motivating operation. We all knew that clinically, but we have any data on it. And so Mark Stafford then did his master's thesis uh, on that topic. And we, we published all these lines of studies in the Verbal Behavior Journal, which didn't exist at that time. So we had to create a journal because nobody wanted any of this stuff. Our research methodology was so odd that Jabba wanted nothing to do with this kind of research. And also Jayab didn't want anything to do with it because it was too applied-like. And that's why we started the Verbal Behavior Journal specifically for this kind of research where the methodology uh, was different. And, and, and again, that was part of the problem. Behavior analysis in the 70s up until the 70s had no real research methodology that worked with verbal behavior. The standard ABA reversals and, and multiple base lines just, just weren't working. Uh, I'll talk about automatic reinforcement uh, shortly. And some of my graphs for automatic reinforcement were 10 minutes of data. Now you send 10 minutes of data on a graph to Java and they want nothing to do with it. Uh, and that's partly why it took us 20 years to finally get that published. Uh, uh, then we were interested in, if you teach a tact, where you get an interverbal. Uh, uh, and, and so again, we had a number of kids that could tact all kinds of things. You know, they could tact fruits and vegetables and so on and animals. And uh, a few then said, uh, you know, uh, tell me uh, 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 something you eat. They couldn't say banana, but yet they could tact banana and such. Steve Brom did his master's thesis on that topic, and, and uh, that paper was published in 1982, Brom and Poling. And so this lab we had was, was really productive, and we were, we were very excited about it. Uh, we ended up conducting about 50 verbal behavior research projects uh, over about a six or so, maybe five year period, five or six year period in the 1970s to, to 1980s. 
and, and again, I mentioned that that kind of led into the, the verbal behavior journal because uh, we had nowhere to put any of these studies. That's a tremendous amount of research productivity, 50 projects in, in five years. Were the questions that you were taking on in, in the research projects, were those coming from you and your fellow students based on like clinical experiences going back and talking about it with Jack and the group going, hey, this I'm seeing this thing on this client. Like, how do we make sense of this? Or was it more so looking at the sort of text of, of verbal behavior and the conceptualization of, of the verbal behavior uh, textbook and going, uh, how do we, there, there seem to be holes here and trying to fill those in. It would be the, the, the former, that is, we considered what we were doing as what we call problem-oriented research. Uh, and that is that a kid couldn't tact or couldn't man. And then we go back to verbal behavior and try and you know, sort it out and then go back to Jack. Jack wasn't a clinician. I mean, he, he, uh, he was the farthest from a clinician you could, you could be. Uh, but he'd come in and watch our sessions and, you know, he'd stand over us and say, well, see if you can get him to man or try this or try that. And uh, uh, he'd say, well, you ought to look on page 37 of verbal behavior. On page 402, you're going to see that, see, see what Skinner says about the more detail in, in that. And so uh, we had plenty of, of language disorders. So we had, again, 70 kids who had all, every possible verbal behavior issue you could imagine uh, we experienced a good percentage of our kids lived in the Kalamazoo State Hospital. And so uh, there were some really difficult uh, learners and uh, we faced their problems and then, and then uh, found solutions with verbal behavior and with Jack's interpretations of things. Hmm. That's fascinating. And uh, one of the, I, I don't want to ask too many questions on this topic because I think the next piece of it is, is really well connected. So Carl, do you want to talk about the topography-based versus selection-based verbal behavior? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, of all of Jack's uh, conceptual innovations, that's one that influenced me the most, uh, the distinction between topography-based and selection-based uh, verbal behavior. So just briefly, you know, in topography-based verbal behavior, the, the listener is affected by a specific uh, response uh, topography emitted by the speaker. So signs or, or um, <coughs> speaking are the best examples. So cat and fire truck have different topographies. Um, they're, they're different. Um, and selection-based verbal behavior, a listener is affected by a particular stimulus that's pointed to by the speaker. So cat and fire truck are the same response. You point and they have different symbols or different selections. Uh, PECS is a good example, or selecting um, PECS picture exchange communication, or selecting on an iPad, um, good examples of selection-based. So Jack's distinction provided uh, clarity to uh, many clinical issues, uh, such as a selection of a response form for non-vocal children. It really made us look at the advantages of signing. Um, and for years, you know, Kind of, kind of jumped on that. There's so many advantages to signing, but the selection based has its has its place as, as well. Um, but it also led to a whole line of research, and this is a little bit later. Uh, led to a whole line of research on the effect of verbal mediation uh, on the development of emergent relations, um, and that really caught our interest. Um, starting like in the in the mid '90s, anyway. Um, 
and so a couple of years after I was introduced to that topic, after you know I was really influenced by that that, that article, 1985. A couple of years later, uh, late 80s, uh, 1989, I believe, I started to get turned on to stimulus equivalent studies, and that started with a class from Al Poling. Um, I didn't realize he was if he was there in 1982. When did Al Poling start? Al was there when I was there. For, 78, and he's, he started and he's still on the there. faculty. He's still there. Yep. <laughs> and, and Wayne Fuquay. Yeah. Wayne Fuquay so, and yep. Ted. And or, yeah. yeah, people stayed at Western for long times. So um, I became a really big fan of, of Murray Sidman. I started reading stimulus equivalence studies, and I, I read them all basically from 1971. I didn't start in 71. I mean, I, it's 1989, but I think the first Sidman paper was 71. I read them all up to the current, and and you know, I love Sidman. And Sidman didn't you and, do your review paper? Didn't you do your doctoral review paper on stimulus equivalence? Yes, yeah. Um, and that that was in 1989. And and I actually I couldn't decide what I I was interested in stimulus equivalence, but also topography based and selection based. And so I kind of wondered, you know, would if one system versus the other would it make a difference in, in acquisition of derived relations? A transitive or any other stimulus symmetry, um, and and actually I remember I wrote my my review paper and and I said stimulus equivalence and topography based and selection based verbal behavior and would it make a difference and blah 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 and Al Poling just you know <laughs> cut it all out you know it's too long just you know stimulus <laughs> equivalence but he but he loved my paper <laughs> um, but but to, to me because because I thought there was a connection between that. At, at that point, um, how stimulus equivalence and topography-based relations were were um, they're important and, and, and together. And and Lohenkron talked about that um, in his studies as well. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I read a lot of Sidman and Crescent and Sidman Crescent, Wilson Morris, um, and and um, I've got an interesting story about. Uh, uh, Crescent, Sidman Crescent, and the transformation of stimulus function. Uh, a couple of years after my initial interest, after I, I read all those and did my initial work on, on stimulus equivalence, uh, my roommate, John, um, introduced me to his friend Oz uh, from the site department. And um, I didn't know Oz that well, but, you know, he'd come over you know, a few times over the over the coming months and, and would talk a little bit. Um, one day we went to... Um, Oz and I, and I think John, maybe maybe it's just Oz and I, but we went to the bar, we went to Waldo's um, to have a beer, uh, which is by the way, the same bar that I met Mark and Al Neal 15 years later or earlier, uh, except this time we live next door to the bar. So, <laughs> you know, um, so we get talking and, and, and we're talking about our research and, and I don't remember who mentioned stimulus equivalence, but one of us first and then the other, so, oh, wow, me too. Um, and then, you know, I said talking about Sidman and, and Oz mentioned Sidman and, and, um, you know, and then Oz said, yeah, he was a Sidman student. I'm going, oh, really? And then he said, he, he did some research for Sidman. I'm going, wait a minute. It's like, what's your last name? He said, Crescent. I'm going, you're Oz Crescent. <laughs> Holy cow. And he was immediately transformed right before my eyes. He was a different person. Five minutes ago, he was John's friend, you know, Oz. Now he's Oz Crescent. And it's like, 
everything about this guy now was different in my eyes. And, you know, it's like now I, I, I bowed, you know, Oz, Oz John's friend was okay. He was a cool guy, but he wasn't Oz Cresson. You know, Oz <laughs> Cresson was, wow. And so it's like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm reading about this guy and, you know, uh, hey, hey Carl. Anyway, yeah, uh, was it uh, Oz Crescent? I had heard. Didn't Oz Crescent after Sidman he went to Costa Rica and was doing stimulus equivalents with like macaws or something? Yeah, yeah. And I and and I remember when he was going to Costa Rica. I actually helped him with his dissertation. We had meet over. I was living in a trailer at the time, and he spent a lot of time over there. And and um, his dissertation was about four hundred pages long. Um, but he used, um, he didn't want to use a computer um, and, and, and neither did I for mine, but for different reasons. But he was, cause he was going to Costa Rica and he didn't want to do research that depended on technology that wasn't, a, wasn't readily available. And so he's kind of old school with that. But yeah, I remember, I, I've, I haven't heard from him in years, but um, that was some, some good. And um, so he was one when I get into extended research, he was one of the ones that extended a lot of this. But uh, back to uh, 1989, um, my master's thesis um, under Jack, um, and this is one of the things I said, we spent a lot of time at Jack's house and I remember working this out and just going through all of the stuff sitting on his living room, Sunday mornings he'd be in his sweatpants. Um, and and the, you know, house was always a mess. You know, Alice lived next door and it was always neat. Her house is the entertaining <laughs> one. But um, so we did that comparison between selection-based and topography-based verbal behavior. And we found that participants, all of whom had limited verbal behavior, acquired signs more readily than they acquired symbols. Okay. Uh, in, in addition, we found that, um, and this is a key part, uh, um, when participants were taught signs, they were able to form transitive relations. The very same participants, when taught with symbol selections, were not able to form transitive relations. So all four subjects went through both phases in different orders. Topography-based, teach them a sign, which allowed them to tact. They could form transitive relations. No signs, selection-based, they didn't form the transitive relations. Um, so this suggested that without a specific response form, nothing's available to mediate the transfer between variables in a selection-based task. Um, and that really, to me, that's really, really became a, 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 a big focus point now of, of the, my research uh, through the 90s. And um, Carl, wasn't, yep. wasn't that also, yep. that was the point that Barry Lohenkron, who read your thesis then, and in his paper responded back to your master's thesis, and said his data were showing the same thing that your data were. Now, this was back in 1991, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was just going to say, uh, Lowen Cron and, and, uh, and Jack were, were on to something then. And, and one of the things that, that uh, Barry Lowen Cron mentioned that he caught on to, which not a few people have, have talked about this, but I thought what was significant was that a lot of the kids during the topography base, I'd say, uh, which one's Zug, for example, and, and they have to select an object because they were taught to, the wooden piece was, uh, let's just say, tap your head. And when I say Zug, that was tap your head. But we never taught them to select the wooden piece when I said Zug. Um, and there are three of those objects. But with the topography base, I'd say, which one's Zug? And a lot of them would make the sign. 
And then they may, so they tap their head and then select Zug. Sometimes they would make the wrong sign. I'd say, which one's Zug? And they'd tug their ear, which is a sign for SigPi. And guess what? They'd select SigPi. And so it's like, man, there's something going on here with that mediated verbal behavior. And there's, a, you know, there's some joint control there. Um, and, and so, you know, Lohenkron uh, talked about that in his 91 paper. Um, now, this study was, was followed up by a replication as a dissertation for one of Jack's PhD students, Riyad uh, Ryakit. And um, um, that was good. I, I got to help all, all, a lot of these researchers with, with these further studies. So I remember working with Riyad um, with designing the study, and, and we published uh, Riyad, uh, Sundberg, and Michael in 1991 in uh, Analysis of Verbal Behavior. The results were similar. Um, but over the next seven years, you know, in the early early to mid '90s, uh, there are many extensions and and, and stuff with this um, research with mixed results, and some of them found that uh, participants did better with selection based systems. And I remember hearing about this, and people say, "Hey, Carl, there's there's some contradictions to your data." So, oh, wow, okay, I didn't think a whole lot about it, but over the years, I started reading these papers, and I thought, wait a minute. Um, what's interesting about these results is that all of the studies that where the subjects uh, or the participants, we have to say participants, back then we called them subjects, so it's kind of, um, but the participants um, were all highly verbal. The ones that, that showed favor to, to the selection base, they're highly verbal. Um, and and um, um, they were either college students or typically developing children. And Mark, at that time, or for years, I've, you've always said, like, you can't study highly verbal people and, have, and reach the same conclusion because having a verbal repertoire changes everything, you know? And with a, with a selection-based task, right. with stimulus equivalence, and we believe with RFT relations, all of that, having that verbal repertoire um, changes everything. So this led to the question, um, why, you know? Uh, so we became interested in the role of mediating verbal behavior. What was happening when relations were met? What happens if you disrupt the tact? Um, and that's where our research evolved. Uh, Jack was interested in multiple control, mediated verbal behavior, antecedent control, multiple antecedent control. And we, uh, his students and Jack, started doing more research on multiple control and verbal mediation um, starting in the mid 90s. I'm not saying we were the first to do it, but I mean, that's from my memory with Jack. Um, and I don't think there's a whole lot um, no. out there before that. Not um, much, no, nobody else yeah. that I can think of. Yeah, and going with this line of research, um, in chapter nine of, of Skinner's book, Verbal Behavior, uh, he describes two main types of multiple control. And this is another one where Jack kind of clarified and came up with some terms. Um, and Jack termed these two types of multiple control as convergent multiple control, which is a control of a single response uh, by more than one variable. For example, um, tell me a fruit that is red. Okay? Um, and a correct response would, would have to come under the control of both variables, fruit and red. Um, divergent control is a strengthening of um, more than one response by a single variable. Tell me some fruits. Tell me some things that are red. Um, and this is hard for a lot of our kids with, with autism. And, you know, I worked with, with kids and adults with autism for well, a good 20 years now, and, and th these relations are hard, you know. 
tell me something that grows on your head, hat, you know? And, and the example, um, you ask a student, what do you eat with? And he says, pizza, you know? And, and by the way, a lot of staff, you know, have to correct them and say, oh, well, that's pretty close. And I'm saying, no, 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 that's exactly wrong. Because that is a question, it's a test of a conditional discrimination. And the word with, <laughs> that's the key there. We know you can tell us, Pizza, when you say eat, but the word with is supposed to control some behavior. It's a conditional discrimination and it's supposed to change the answer. The word eat should bring to, to strength any response having to do with food consumption, pizza, macaroni, hot dogs. There's your divergent control. But adding the word with, that's a game changer. That adds a convergent variable that now limits the response. You got eat and you got with. Variable one, eat. Variable two, with. And that limits the response to well, utensils, hands, knife, fork, spoon, whatever. Um, and that's hard for a lot of our kids. <clears throat> now, Skinner always, always asserted that complex verbal behavior, and this is what we're talking about here, is multiply controlled. And, and, and what's, what's Jack's interested in? And he talks about it as early as science and human behavior. And he talks about it more so in, in verbal behavior. Um, in the later chapters. Uh, but some behavior analysts suggest that Skinner's analysis does not account for complex. It can't. That a behavior analyst, um, there's a whole group that says Skinner's analysis cannot account for complex behavior. And they go as far as suggesting that we need a whole new model to account for it. Uh, most of the researchers of stimulus equivalents, uh, Sidman, for example, um, uh, love Sidman, but, but uh, and Hayes, uh, Barnes, uh, RFT, Hayes, for example, Barnes, Holmes, and Stewart, um, they generally maintain that verbal mediation is not relevant um, in the emergence of new relational frames, okay? And they typically don't discuss or account for potential um, mediating verbal behaviors in their research. By, by contrast, um, Horn and Lowe, for example, 1996, and Lohenkron, 1998, they do base their positions on Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior. And they, uh, along with Jack and us, argue that mediating verbal behaviors, covert or overt, um, play an important role in the development of uh, equivalence classes, emergent relations, um, uh, relational frames, um, and in support of their view, several studies uh, have demonstrated that a participant's self-verbal uh, behavior can affect performance in various complex tasks. Um, I'll just give an example of some of the research. It'd be great. I mean, if you anyone in the audience wants to um, check out some of these papers, a lot of these are Jack students. Uh, DeGraff and Schlinger. Schlinger was a, a student of Jack's, 2012. Lohenkron, 91, 2006. Uh, Miguel, uh, Peter's daughter, Carr and Michael. There's a whole group from Western Michigan, um, 2008. Seidner and Michael on joint control, um, 2006. Um, and, and Kyle Miguel's done a lot on, on what he calls bi-directional naming. And that's the, that research by Kyle's really confirming and, and Anna, uh, Peter's daughter uh, as, as well. Um, those are good reads if you wanna read more of that. Um, but I also conducted my dissertation on this topic uh, Sundberg, Sundberg, and Michael, uh, and we published this in JAB in 2018. Finally, they're interested in this. Um, 2018, but I actually designed this study in like uh, 1995, 
I ran the subjects in 1997. And, and, and I think that's important to mention. In one, in one sense, I, I, I hesitate to mention that because then you're thinking, doing the math and saying it took 21 years to get this published. Um, but I think it's important that we, to understand that started this, this was in the mid nineties that we started talking about this, Jack and his students. Uh, when we started really finding this important. Um, and um, we were interested in the role of, of, of covert mediation. And we found that in an arbitrary matching to sample task, high verbal participants, college students, um, um, depended on mediating topography-based behavior uh, and joint control as supplementary sources of stimulus control um, to make their uh, efficient selections. So for example, they talk to themselves. And, 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 and for example, um, uh, the nonsense word BB uh, goes with a squiggly line. So I say, which one's BB? The answer is a, out of 12 is a squiggly line and uh, all these different things. Well, they'd convert that, they'd make stuff up. BB, that sounds like baby, squiggly line, that's wild hair. Baby, the baby with wild hair, okay? The, the subjects with um, uh, low verbal subjects, they couldn't do that. And so they failed on, on many selection-based tasks. Um, and so this data suggests that it's a participant's mediating verbal behavior that provides valuable supplementary sources of control. And these sources uh, participate in evoking selection behaviors by producing emergent relations. Uh, so in conclusion, we're getting the results that supported what Jack was telling us all along and others um, about topography-based and selection-based and multiple control and, and, and mediation. Um, and uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. And I, I get pumped up talking about this. <laughs> it's automatically reinforced. Well, Automatic reinforcement, Jack... as Mark's going to talk about. Well, and that's what Jack did to us, you know? Jack had us talking, thinking, behavior analysis constantly. Yeah, and, uh, cocktail uh, napkins. Had many the automatic ideas. reinforcement from yep. getting it right, and having it all make sense, and you know, having, having things fit has was, always been fun. It, it seems like the theme here has been Jack sort of either coming up with big ideas or maybe refining some of Skinner's big ideas a little bit. And then a student sort of, you know, really taking them on and research and refining them even more. Um, well, yeah, we all needed yeah. thesis and dissertations and verbal behavior was so loaded with research projects mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I did that one paper called 301 Research Topics from Skinner's book, Verbal Behavior, and that was 1991. And in part, that was because we had, uh, there was so much there, and so many people needed thesis and dissertations, and were looking for projects. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Jack didn't go find topics. They would find a topic. You'd find something that interests you. And Jack didn't. I mean, Jack wasn't like, you got to do this, 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 this. What are you interested in as a student? Okay, let's figure it out. And then he'd, he'd walk you through it and give you assignments. And you'd come back with uh, failures or success. And you'd go from there. Uh, but that may segue us into automatic reinforcement. Because that was another topic that uh, uh, Jack was very interested in. And one that was kind of uh, perplexing. Uh, Skinner had, had introduced the term automatic reinforcement in science and human behavior, uh, but he offered very few technical details. He didn't really define it. He didn't, he didn't give us a lot of information. And in fact, McCorkadale 
in his paper, Retrospective Appreciation of uh, Skinner's book, Road Weaver in 1969, wrote about automatic reinforcement and said, uh, uh, for him, it was a little perplexing and that Skinner pretty much left the details for the reader to figure out. Uh, that is, uh, he used the term over a hundred times in verbal behavior and his other writings, but he never defined it. It wasn't in any of the indexes. So you won't find automatic reinforcement in verbal behavior and about behaviorism and in, in uh, science human behavior, contingencies of reinforcement, all of those books he talked about it, but never in. So what is it? Never indexed it. We, we're not sure what it was. And uh, Jack talked about it in his, in his classes and uh, Jack pretty much had a handle on it, but not, not quite. And, and so uh, uh, several of his students, like, like Carl's generation of the topography-based and selection-based research, several of us uh, under Jack's uh, direction took on the topic of automatic reinforcement. Uh, Marge Vaughn uh, took the conceptual components uh, and myself and Rick Smith and a few other students took the empirical components. Uh, Vaughn and Michael, 1982, published their paper, and Marge, for her, this was Marge's uh, review paper for her PhD, and Marge went through and found all these hundred citations. She went through all of skin. This is before word search and before, <laughs> you know, any of this stuff. Marge manually found every place that Skinner talked about automatic reinforcement and then categorized them. What's he mean here, 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 and here? Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, what about automatic punishment, automatic stimulus control, automatic shaping, automatic mate? What, what is he talking about? And so uh, uh, her and Jack then kind of collected all the data and, and basically said, all Skinner's talking about is that behavior uh, can be strengthened without any obvious consequences from other people. That is, you don't need a person to deliver a reinforcement. That was a big issue at the time where, oh, you know, the, you, you don't reinforce every word the child says. How can reinforcement be relevant to language acquisition? Well, of course, you don't reinforce every word. There's something else operating here. And what Skinner had said, what's operating here, and he laid it out in verbal behavior. He told us what's going on. There's two ways that automatic reinforcement works. In one way, the behavior has practical effects on the environment. And those environments produce a consequence. That is, you put a key in a door and you unlock it, all manual, nonverbal behavior, and the door unlocks and you, and you get uh, entrance. Well, that uh, uh, creates a new reinforcer, an open door that strengthens the behavior of turning the key. No person needs to be involved. Of course, you got a conditioning history and all that, but an instance of behavior occurs. Well, we have practical effects on our behavior all the time in terms of walking, looking for something, turning and finding something you can't uh, uh, locate by moving other things and finding, ah, there it is. And so search behaviors are automatically reinforced. The list goes on and on. The second way, which was uh, of interest to us working with nonverbal children, was that uh, Skinner says the product of your behavior also could have reinforcing properties. That is, what you say could sound good. Singing a song may sound good. That is, uh, an infant babbles uh, and it sounds good to the infant. Well, why? Well, Bijou and Bear laid out why in their 1965 book, uh, Child Development Series, that uh, that sound has been paired with other forms of reinforcement. The sound becomes a conditioned reinforcer for the infant. In the random production of sounds, some sounds have that conditioning history. 
and others don't. Those that have the conditioning history ultimately increase in frequency in a babbling repertoire, and, and that's all conceptual. And so uh, uh, we, we thought, uh, let's try and get some data on that. So in, in 1977, I started some uh, pairing procedures and we started doing that with kids where we would pick sounds or words or phrases pair them with reinforcers, and then uh, see if they entered their babbling repertoire. And lo and behold, it turned out by pairing sounds that the child had never emitted before uh, with tickling and lifting and edibles and so on, that a post-session measurement showed those sounds popping uh, back up in, in their repertoire uh, and, and uh, presented that. That was my um, comp. My comp for my PhD was that project where I showed that the, the automatic reinforcement had, had those effects. Uh, and then like, like Carl's discussion of Jack's other students, and that's the way Jack would typically do, you know, students would get together in a thematic line of research and the older students might run something and then newer generation students, like a lot of professors do, stick with this line of research. Well, automatic reinforcement was a line of research Jack continued on well after he retired. He was still publishing on automatic reinforcement, just like he with Carl, he was still publishing on, on topography-based and selection-based uh, behavior 15 years after he retired in, in 2018. Um, uh, well, so uh, the, the uh, uh, automatic reinforcement study was followed up by Rick Smith's master's thesis where he did the same thing with typically developing kids. Uh, Rick added to this line of research that if you paired a sound with an aversive, like ga, 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 no, it dropped right out of the kid's babbling repertoire, which freaked Rick out to no end. That that just a he, he did two pairing trials uh, of an aversive with a sound, and he was working with his own two daughters, and, uh, who were like nine months, ten or eleven and thirteen months old, and the sounds he targeted completely dropped out of their babbling repertoire. He thought he'd ruined them for life, and we didn't publish that study uh, until about twenty years later, like with with Carl. Uh, not only because there was no journal that would accept 10 minutes of data, as I mentioned before, uh, but I called Rick and said, you know, Sid Bijou said, where's, where, where's your publication? You should be publishing that. And, and I said to Sid, well, uh, I'll call Rick and see. And Rick had said, both my daughters are in college now. They turned out okay. I guess I can publish those data. So that's published in 1996, along with the paper Jack and I did. Uh, uh, along with a couple of others. And uh, that line of research continued on with Cayo Miguel and, and uh, 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 several others of, of Jack's graduate students. Barbesh published a paper on that. Anna Peter's daughter published a paper. Uh, and, and so again, Jack continued to refine and produce that concept of automatic reinforcement. But as I'd mentioned before, uh, uh, Everywhere in verbal or throughout in verbal behavior, he also mentions automatic extinction. That is, your behavior can be extinguished by the practical environment, uh, in the sense that you know the coin machine it just doesn't work. That machine, you can put all the money you want in there, but you're never going to get anything out of it, and pretty soon you you, you quit doing it. Uh, so uh, uh, that that kind of again summed up some of the issues that Jack would do. Is that we would we would uh, find problems. We'd find in Skinner where he talked about the conceptual analysis of those problems, and Jack would kind of guide us through how to how to do change and 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 so on. Um, and that was all all very fruitful. You know, uh, the automatic reinforcement stuff continues on, as I said today. But 
We have a whole line of research on the role of automatic reinforcement and self-injurious behavior, Tim Vollmer's work. Uh, automatic reinforcement's relationship to the acquisition of syntax and grammar, some of Dave Palmer's conceptual uh, research, and Svein Eikerseth from uh, Norway has published studies on exactly how automatic reinforcement shapes up syntactical word order in typically developing kids. Fascinating uh, kind of content. Uh, but again, one of those things, somebody had to go in and fish it out of verbal behavior because it just wasn't there and Jack saw it. That's awesome, and I have so many follow-up questions to everything you talked about. I think I think when you mentioned earlier, we could really write a book or you could write a book on this, uh, but I do want to be respectful of your time. You talked so much about the conceptual advancements that Jack Michael added to behavior analysis and the really rich lineage of students that he produced, and then, of course, you know, all of the uh, effects that his students then had in the world of behavior analysis and beyond. As we wrap up this interview that is focused on a tribute to Jack Michael and his legacy, are there any ways that you think current behavior analysts could, could honor or sort of carry on Jack Michael's legacy into the future of behavior analysis? Well, one thought that comes to mind quickly for me is stick with Skinner, keep reading verbal behavior, keep, keep the conceptual analysis there. And, and that's a, a, a huge concern because I, I've always worried that behavior analysts beyond uh, earlier generations maybe are, are not learning the same degree of behavior analysis that we learned. The first thing is we all had animal labs and we were raised with rats and pigeons uh, you know, as part of our training, we read Skinner in almost in not every course, but a lot of Skinner in labs. And you don't get those so much in today's education of BCBAs. And, and that's a huge part of, of our field. I'm not sure if there's an easy solution to that, but uh, I know that's something that Jack insisted on throughout his entire career. Read Skinner, uh, run pigeons, <laughs> run rats. <laughs> Yeah, and and there is the there is a difference now, um, and it's not as easy to get that, you know, widespread conceptual analysis with. There's so many. I mean, autism changed everything. Insurance changed everything, um, and, and there's so many uh, BCBAs out there. Um, but I I always train. You know, I work. You know, for for all my years working with children with autism or adults and staff, I spent more time trying to teach my staff conceptual issues. Think on the conceptual level versus um, the procedures. Now the sure procedure, here's how you do a correction trial, but I need them to know why, because you know, what do you do when something goes wrong? And Jack's, you know, on the back of my mind when I'm doing all of this, like, man, I think the conceptual issues are important. Otherwise, you have to write a, you know, you got to make a flow chart that's like takes up the whole wall. Well, what if, and then, you know, that's why I didn't like you know, the cookbook. But, but getting, getting that interest in the conceptual analysis um, is important. And, and um, things are changing now. There's, there's a lot of branches out there, but, but sticking with Skinner um, is important. And carrying another, on Jack's research, read, read some of Jack's stuff, read, 
um, principles and proceed. What was that book? Concepts and principles. Concepts and principles. Yeah, exactly. That's the point I was going to make, Carl. We were right on the yeah, same topic. Yeah, yeah. The first 75 pages of concepts and principles, Jack lays out key terms in behavior analysis in like paragraph form. Uh, every student in behavior analysis should memorize and learn Jack's definition and treatment of all of these major concepts in our, our field. They're not all in Cooper, Huron, and Heward. Uh, uh, a good share of them are not. And, and, and I'm in that book, nothing to diss that book, but it's an applied book. Uh, it, uh, we as behavior analysts, uh, you know, it's, it's an analyst. We need to stick with our conceptual foundation and uh, a nice, I want to say review, but a nice collection of what you should know is in that book. Jack also wrote a paper called What Every Student of Behavior Analysis Should Know. Uh, and so those kind of things you'll find are not so much in today's education. And that's why he wrote papers like that was you need to know about these various effects. That those are awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, as a as an educator, <clears throat> as a professor, I find uh, his book. I have got his book on my shelf. I reference it constantly. Um, but the the push to maintain that connection to Skinner's work and, and and build on that conceptual analysis really resonates with me. So, so thank you for sharing that. Thank you for giving us the thank opportunity. <clears throat> of yeah. course. Well, this, this interview talking about Jack Michael has been really meaningful. Thank you both for coming on the show today to talk about him. Oh, thank You're you welcome. for having us. Yes, thank you. All right, before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. And to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Remember, this is the last episode of Season 3, so to find out when Season 4 is released and to access those episodes as soon as they're put out, find us on social media because that's where we post everything right away. I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thanks to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thanks to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast.